On many different levels, Dharma practice is a path of opening. And we can see this with increasing clarity, especially during a long retreat. You can see it in terms of the body, the opening of the body. Normal perception is that of the body being quite solid. As we begin the practice and begin to go inwards, we go from this feeling of solidity to an awareness of more discrete and distinct sensations. Very specific sensations arising and passing. And as we begin to watch on the sensation level with increased closeness, often begin to lose a sense of the form of the body. Not only, not only lose the sense of solidity, but also the sense of form. At times in the practice, it begins to feel as if it's just sensations in space. As the momentum of mindfulness gets stronger, begin to experience the body as an energy flow, as an energy field of increasing refinement, increasing power, increasing subtlety. Sometimes the body becomes so open that it disappears. Not only does the form disappear, but sometimes we may be sitting and there's no sense of the body at all. senses open, not only the sense of the body, but all of the physical senses of hearing and seeing and smelling. And you may have had the experience of being so open to the sound that it's as if the sound goes right through one. And we're hearing it with such clarity. Or you may have moments of seeing where everything seems so bright, so sharp, so clear. It's not that objects have actually gotten sharper or clearer. It's that our senses are opening, are becoming clarified. There's an opening on the emotional level. Often in the course of a retreat of Dharma practice, we begin to open to a whole range of emotions that may not have been so obvious. Sometimes the feelings of tremendous love or gratitude or happiness. And sometimes we open to feelings that are much more difficult. Maybe it's feelings of anger or rage or grief or sadness. And as if through the sitting and walking, through the quieting of the mind, we create the space, the inner space, for all of this to start revealing itself. Sometimes it's emotions or mind states of great evenness. People have come to me in interviews occasionally, thinking the practice was not going well because there wasn't any great emotional upheaval. It's all different. We all have different conditions. Sometimes we're opening to a place of calm within us. The body's open, the senses open, the emotions open. We open to deeper places of silence. At first, and for some time, we're mostly lost in thought. You know, and our, our mental experience is simply one of being on one train of thought association or another. 
as we begin to make some progress in the practice, we get glimpses of the fact that we're thinking. We know we're thinking, even if it's after the fact. And then as the practice goes on, sometimes we may have the experience of actually being able to stay with the primary object for a breath or two. <laughs> and thoughts in the background, they're still there, but they're not quite so dominating. They're not the total experience of our minds. Around the breath, and there's a little more silence, and there's this background, background noise. Sometimes the background noise even stops. It is actually possible for the thought process just to quiet down so much. And so we experience at different times different levels of silence within us. My first teacher, Munindraji, just gave a talk on 21 kinds of silence. <laughs> Took three hours. <laughs> And there's so much to open to, so much inside. Dharma practice is not a reaching out for something, but rather it's a settling back and an opening to what is already there. Practice is really coming to a realization of the essential nature of this mind and body. So it's nothing we have to get, but rather it's simply something we have to discover, we have to open to. So the question which can arise now is what is it that keeps us closed? What keeps us closed in our practice? What keeps us closed in our lives? And when we examine this, we begin to see that there are some very powerfully conditioned fears which arise in the mind, which function to keep us closed off to the body, to the senses, to the emotions, to places of silence. Some of these fears which are so strong and so common you know, to many of us, this, there's often fear of pain, that at a certain level of pain or discomfort the mind closes out of fear. There's often fear of certain emotional states, and certain psychological states that the mind is afraid of and so pulls back from. There's fear of impermanence. On deeper levels, as we begin to see the momentariness of phenomena, Often the mind pulls back from that, or shrinks from it. It's afraid of the insecurity of it. Deep-rooted fears of death, of the unknown. The problem is that all of these pain and physical pain and emotional pain and impermanence, and death. All of these things are part of us. They're part of our experience, they're part of life. They are part of what is true. When there is fear of what is a part of ourselves, then we become split, then we become fragmented. 
When these fears are strongly conditioned and we don't see them, we don't know how to work with them, it's as if we are cut off from an essential and often very large part of who we are. As we walk on this journey of opening, what happens is that we reach boundaries of what is comfortable, of what is acceptable. We go along and go along and everything's fine until a certain point. We reach a certain edge, a certain boundary. And it's right at that edge we try to that boundary of what is acceptable, what is comfortable, what is okay, that the fear starts to reveal itself. And so working with fear, understanding fear, becomes an essential part of Dharma practice. Because it's, it's what happens just at that time when we reach our age. And so the first thing we need to do is we, we need to begin to see what it is that limits us. So we become conscious, we become mindful of these places of limitations and the possibility of going beyond the limits. And secondly, we need to explore very deeply and carefully the nature of fear itself. What is this quality? What is this mind state that's arising and can have such a powerful conditioning force in our lives? The beauty of the Dharma is that it's everything. And the implication of this is that everything is workable. Everything can be worked with in terms of Dharma practice. So what are the things that limit us? Where do we find ourselves at the edge of the boundary? most obvious one, the one that we come up against very clearly, is that of physical pain. We've been, we've been strongly conditioned to avoid it. We don't like it. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. And this fear of being uncomfortable, fear of unpleasantness, can have a tremendously limiting um, power in our lives. I saw it very clearly in my own practice. For years, I postponed going to Burma. I mean, even after I was in India, which is not so comfortable, but the stories coming out of Burma were just too much for me to contemplate. <laughs> and I could see a lot of my friends were going off and going to the monastery and practicing, and I could just see my mind kind of shrinking back, not wanting to put myself in such an uncomfortable place. The night before I went, I can't remember, it was the night before I went to my first night there after finally <laughs> gathering up enough courage just to go. I had this dream of entering the monastery and they wouldn't let me keep my zafu. <laughs> I felt this panic and anxiety in the dream of somehow no zafu to sit on. And it really reflected this, this tremendous concern I had about staying comfortable. In our practice we can see it 
do some small ways. They may feel good at the time, but in, in particular ways. Pay attention as you're sitting. Pay attention to why you make small movements. You know, the countless small adjustments of posture, what are they about? When we look carefully, we see that they're mostly about not wanting to be uncomfortable. You know, we're sitting and there's some discomfort starting to happen. Uh, sometimes there's a major shift of position, but more often than that, just the slight, the slight little movements. What's very helpful in really facing this and seeing it clearly is for some periods of time to really take a resolution, a vow. And it can be for whatever period of time feels appropriate to you. You can take this resolution for this period of time, I'm not going to move at all. I'm going to sit perfectly motionless. Let me die. You'll be the first. <laughs> It could be 10 minutes, it could be half an hour, it could be an hour, it could be whatever you feel is appropriate for you at this time. But just to say this tendency to avoid discomfort, it's a very powerful resolution. It actually tremendously strengthens the samadhi, the concentration. There's that kind of fear of discomfort. Another common one that arises in the mind of yogis is fear of the discomfort of sleepiness. We don't like to feel sleepy. And so the mind will do many things with that. You may feel wide awake at night. But the thought will come, well, I'd better go to sleep now in case I'm tired tomorrow. You know, and what is that? It's just a fear arising in the mind of how one might feel, an uncomfortable feeling may arise, and it conditions then our choice. This is, this is a small example of something that happens in so many ways in our practice and in our lives outside of the practice. And so it's very helpful just to see this mechanism, how it's working, so we recognize it more and more clearly. This fear of actual discomfort, this fear of things like sleepiness, this fear of anticipated discomfort. You know, we may be sitting and there's a sensation arising in the body that's even quite painful, and in the moment is okay. We actually can be with. But you're probably familiar with that train of thought that starts to arise. I'll never make it the whole hour. You know, and the fear arising from the anticipation of the pain remaining. That also is a contraction, it's a pulling back, it's a real barrier to opening. Working with pain in the practice is an inevitable and tremendously helpful arena of development. Pain is actually a very good object because it brings us right to the edge of what we're willing to be with. Now, it's, it's interesting that theoretically, I think many of us, or most of us, have this desire to play the edge. That's the theoretical desire. The practice actually brings us right to it. So that's where we want to explore, that's where we want to investigate. Using pain in this way, or un even not pain, just discomfort.
feelings of discomfort, to use it in a way to explore the actual sensations and the reaction that we have in the mind of fear, fear of experiencing them. Of course, as we've mentioned many times, the great secret in working both with the pain and the fear of pain, or fear of discomfort, is learning how to soften. To soften into it, to open to it. The reminder that it's okay to feel these things. When we can look at sensations beyond the response of fear, begin to have a tremendous appreciation for the power of these material elements. You know, especially as we begin to feel the body not as something solid, but as an energy field of elements. There's tremendous intensity, there's tremendous power which reveals itself as we play that edge, as we really go into the intensity of sensation. It has its very exact analog in the power of the material elements outside of the body, in nature. Um, perhaps you've been in you know, those tremendous storms, or seen pictures of raging fires. What is that? It's the same elements that comprise our body. And through the practice, we begin to feel that level of intensity. These elements are extremely powerful, which is why playing the edge of our willingness to open gets tremendously intense. And it can lead us to deeper and deeper levels of understanding the nature of these elements. But in order to do this, in order to overcome the fear that is often conditioned in the mind, we need to understand different kinds of pain. Because if we confuse them, then the fear has an opening in the mind and keeps, keeps coming. Because one kind of pain is actually a danger signal. Now one kind of pain is telling us Something's wrong. You know, something harmful is happening. You put your hand in fire and it starts to burn. You wouldn't particularly want to... Hot, hot, hot. <laughs> it's not appropriate. You want it hot. Oh. You take your hand out of the fire. So that's the kind of pain that we really want to learn about and to know yeah, this, this is a signal, this is telling us something. It'll do something about this. There's another kind of pain which can happen especially as the practice goes deeper. Which can be the pain of a healing crisis. And there are countless stories of people with various diseases, either current or latent or historical, things, traumas to the body that happened years and years ago. And in the course of the practice, they start showing themselves. I had a very striking example of this once. I was doing, this was in the 84 retreat here with Sayadaw, I was doing the walking meditation in the lower walking room, and I started to get this incredible pain right in my shin bone. And it was so strong, it felt to me like the bone was protruding from the skin. And I kept checking, <laughs> because every step was so painful. 
And the memory that came back, you know, within just a few moments of that intense pain happening, was when I was a young child running across the field trying to, you know, pull, flying a kite. And I was watching the kite instead of where I was going, and I ran right into the cement bench, you know, right at that place. And it was so amazing. This was just 30 years later, 35 years later, just doing the walking meditation, and that's what comes up. And so that kind of pain actually is a, could call it a healing pain. You know, it can happen from past events like that. It actually can happen from very organic diseases that people have, where they go through the crisis of it and are then healed. The third kind of pain, which is a little less dramatic, you could call it just ordinary dharma pain. You know, we're sitting in this tension and this aching and this burning and this all the stuff that you're very familiar with. It's just the nature of the body, one side of the body revealing itself. How to distinguish the first from the second two? That's the big question. Because if we can really see what's a danger and what's not, then it enables us to be with the second two with less and less fear. So we know this is okay. The single most useful guideline that I found in the, in the course of my practice has to do with whether the pain goes away when the mind when one gets up from the sitting, you know, when one withdraws the attention. If the pain goes away, it's not a danger, it's not a problem. And so it's just too much, and you might have your own intuitive sense. There's probably a range of signals you know, that you learn about in your own experience. It's very important to see this clearly because it enables us then to be with the very intense painful feelings that can come in practice that are actually fine to be with and help us get over or understand the nature of fear in the mind about pain. second great arena of fear is that of really difficult emotions or difficult psychological states. There's a fear often of our own shadow side. In a certain states or certain emotions either which we don't recognize. You know, they're there and there's this tremendous cover of pretense that they're not there because they're so difficult. Or if we do recognize them, we don't accept them. But certain states of mind, certain emotions, certain psychological qualities are so uncomfortable that they are unacceptable to us. As long as there is this fear in us of different emotions, of different psychological states, as long as there is this non-acceptance, it leads to a very basic insecurity because we are closing off to a part of ourselves. These are states, these are emotions which are part of the experience. And yet we're saying, no, I can't open to this, I can't feel this, I can't face this, I can't accept it. 
Where does this fear lead? It has tremendous consequences. It can, also, it can often lead this fear of fearing certain aspects of ourselves. It can lead to feelings of not being liked. You know, we see our own shadow side, and if we can't accept it, we can't imagine that anybody else could accept it. So then we compound another fear on top of it, the fear of not being liked, not being accepted, not being loved, which is actually a projection of our own feelings about these states within us. This leads on to a lot of consequences in how we relate. All coming from the basic non-acceptance in ourselves, non-acceptance of certain parts of ourselves. We begin to look to others for validation. You know, are we okay in other people's eyes? It's a very unstable way to live. Now, if we're always looking for that sense of security in how other people see us, we spend our lives trying to please, instead of coming from a place of real centeredness, of real self-acceptance. It leads us to look for validation in other people's eyes. It leads to the creation of self-images. If there's parts of ourselves that we can't accept, that we're afraid to feel, so we create self-images that are acceptable. You know, and we're familiar with so many of these images. Often it, often it takes the form of identification of different roles. We lock ourselves into, oh, this is who I am. And I'm a student, or I'm a teacher, I'm a parent, I'm a whatever, there are thousands. And so we solidify this sense of role and we imprison ourselves. Fear of certain states within ourselves and the insecurity which comes from that leads to one of the most common phenomena of mind. One which almost every yogi experiences countless times. It leads to the judgment of others. What is the cause of all this judging that goes on in the mind? When we trace it back, it becomes more and more clear that this judgment of others comes from the judgment of ourselves. This non-acceptance of certain parts of ourselves, the fear of experiencing certain states, the insecurity that comes from that non-acceptance, so we start judging others because it gives us a certain sense of security. It really solidifies the sense of who we are every time we make a judgment about others. Watch, watch the feeling that arises when the mind is judging. <laughs> There's kind of a perverse self-satisfaction. You know, it's, it's like, in some way, we're reinforcing this and we all know it, you know, this is not an esoteric uh, mindset. But it takes careful looking to see it's so common. Okay, what's behind it? What's feeding it? What's fueling this constant judging and comparing? It's very interesting to trace it back to the relationship we have to certain things within ourselves. Unfortunately, even though it gives a kind of 
self satisfaction, this judging, comparing mind, when we're watching carefully what our experience is, there's really a tremendous feeling of separation and a feeling of alienation. You can see, I hope you see how much is built on this basic root of non-acceptance or fear of certain states or emotions within ourselves. Because that leads, that basic non-acceptance leads to a fundamental insecurity. Because we're fragmented. And from this insecurity, all of this other stuff follows. Looking to others for validation, creating self-images, judging and comparing others. Out of this insecurity also comes our attachment to people, and to situations, and to objects. Why do we hold on? We hold on because we think it's going to give us some security. from the French philosopher Pascal. Which I actually did not, do not remember from my philosophy days, but from Newsweek magazine. <laughs> the great font of world philosophy. For some reason they were quoting him, I don't quite remember why. He said, the root of most of the problems in the world, most of the problems in the world would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. <laughs> it's all about this. You know, and so you are creating, you are contributing greatly to solving the problems of the world. Because if we can open, if we can just open to all of these parts of ourselves, we come to an inner peace. So just as with pain, with physical pain, physical discomfort, how it brings us to the edge of what we're willing to be with, and then we learn how to play at that edge, to learn how to open a little bit. It's exactly the same when we come to the edge of our emotions, or the edge of different psychological states. When does it become unbearable? When does it become uncomfortable? Have you had the feeling yet of being so restless that it's just impossible to bear it? That's interesting. Right? Just that state where it's unbearable, where we cannot think of sitting another moment. Right then, can we just, okay, let me open, let me see, what's this about? Can we make space behind that? It may be around anger, around sadness, around grief, around feeling insecure, around feeling unworthy, there's a whole range of states where there's fear, fear of opening, fear of going into them. Can we soften? Can we open? Can we play that edge? I had this experience also in that first course with Upandita in 84, it was, it was really intense and I was terrified of the interviews. Because he was... It was hard. And I would sit out in the hall and I could just feel this kind of terror in my mind about having to go in there. And we were seeing him every day. 
you know, a few times she went away from. I was so happy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so one day I went in and I just, and it, it was just, and it was so strong. I went in and I, I screwed up my courage and I just told him, you know, <clears throat> coming in to see you is like going to see the dentist. <laughs> you know, and he just left and just acknowledging it, it kind of broke the, it broke the intensity of it. And I saw how that was one way. Just just the basic acknowledgement, whether to myself or to somebody else, oh, this is what's happening, this is what's here. Instead of it being there, but not being willing to really open to it, to face it, to see it. So this fear of physical discomfort, this fear of emotional or psychological discomfort, there's often fear of impermanence. And again, this is something that intellectually or conceptually, oh, change is fine, you know everything's changing. <laughs> but when it comes right down to it, <clears throat> we're sometimes not so good at letting go. We hold on tightly to this idea to, of the mind and body as being self. And so when we begin to see the momentariness of it all, when, when it begins to break up and dissolve in this thing which we thought was so solid and so me, you see, is not solid and is not me at all, it's just changing elements arising and passing very, very quickly. A common reaction of that, people pull back. It's hard to surrender into that. So there's a tendency to re-solidify things. One way we do this in the practice, and it's very helpful to keep an eye out for this one, because it's a subtlety that can really obstruct the development of practice, and that is the tendency to recreate past experiences, to recreate past insights. You know, because we have some experience that in some way was nice or helpful or pleasant or insightful, and so the mind wants to have it happen again. Doing that, is like dragging a corpse around. You know, the experience is gone, it's finished, it's over, no matter how glorious or how wonderful or how anything. Can we just be in the flow of change, the flow of impermanence, see what comes next, really allow ourselves to surrender into the unknown? And I, the mind is so, so, something. <laughs> Often we're, we're afraid of, really afraid of the changing nature of things, and so we try to recreate what we know, what we're familiar with. Sometimes we're afraid of things not changing. You know, we see certain states in ourselves, certain patterns in ourselves, and we have this fear this will never change. I'm going to be stuck with this for the rest of my life. This is who I am. Working with the fear of impermanence, the fear of change, requires the balancing of two, two qualities in the mind. And these two qualities really sum up the whole of the practice in one way. It's balancing the qualities of effort and surrender. The effort is to be present. 
is as we've seen countless times, the tendency of the mind not to be present, to be lost, to get carried away. And so we need to make some effort to actually be present for what's happening and then to surrender to whatever is happening. So that we're not trying to make something different. We're not, we're not trying to hold on to something, we're not trying to fix anything, we're not trying to avoid anything. It's the effort to be present and the surrender to the Dhamma. There is a great, great power, a great benevolent power, in dwelling in the moment. As we surrender to the moment, as we make the effort to get to the moment, to actually be here and then surrender to it, the whole of the Dharma unfolds from that. That really is a place of refuge. And so many of the difficulties in our lives dissolve, they melt when we actually are dwelling in the moment, in the present moment. Of course, there's a difference between having the idea of being in the present moment and actually doing it. And so our practice very much is this surrender over and over and over again. This fear of physical discomfort or pain, this fear of the shadow side of our minds, this fear of impermanence, of change, fear of not change, a very deep-rooted fear is the fear of death. And the Buddha gave a very interesting discourse just about this. A Brahmin came to him one day from the Brahmin caste in India and said, the Brahmin said that according to his understanding there is no mortal who doesn't fear death. And the Buddha replied, it's true that there are some mortals, some human beings, who do fear death, but there are also some who don't fear death. And then he explained what were the causes for fear to arise at the time of death. And with his usual brilliance of understanding, he just analyzed the causes which are very simple and very obvious and also very profound. He said that one who is not free from lusting after sense pleasures, desiring sense pleasures, craving sense pleasures, thirsting after sense pleasures. For one who is not free of that, fear will arise at the time of death. Because the thought comes, as one is dying, there will be no more of these sense pleasures. I will be leaving these, they will be leaving me. And to the degree that we are craving or desiring seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and thinking to the degree that we desire them, we crave them to that degree at the time of death, at the time of the loss of these things and fear arises. He said, in those for whom there is attachment to the body at the time of death, fear will arise. And it's so obvious. 
you know, as the body gets sick, as it, as it begins the process of dying, at the time, at the actual time of death, to the degree that we're attached, we're holding on to this body as being I, as being self, to the degree of that attachment, there is that much fear of loss, fear of losing it. The third cause of fear at the time of death, the Buddha said, comes to those people who have not done anything good in their lives, who have not performed compassionate actions, compassionate deeds, who have not been of service to others, who have not developed kindness, who have not developed love, who have not protected those who are in fear. but who have cultivated in their lives those actions which are unwholesome, which are cruel, which are harmful. Because the Buddha said at the time of death for those beings, the thought comes into the mind. I go to the destiny of beings who have done those kinds of actions. And so fear arises in the mind. And the last cause, which the Buddha mentioned, of fear at the time of death, is for those people who are confused about the Dhamma, who don't have understanding about the Dhamma. Because at the time of death, as these powerful energies and happenings begin to occur, without clarity of mind about the Dharma, about the truth, about impermanence, about the emptiness of phenomena, then there's great confusion in dealing with forces that there's no understanding of, and so fear arises. These are the people, these are the mortals, the Buddha said, for whom fear will arise. Then there are those for whom fear will not arise at the time of death. Those who are not desiring, attached to, craving, thirsting after sense pleasures. For them dying is peaceful because there's no attachment there. Those people for whom there's not attachment to the body, not much attachment to the body, Then, at the loss of the body, there's no fear, there's peace. Those beings who have lived their lives in a way, who, who have performed many good actions, and benevolent actions, and kind actions, who have really been of service to others. For those at the time of death, the thoughts come really of great inspiration and confidence. And I go to the destiny of those who have done good actions in this tremendous, this tremendous peace. And likewise for those who have an understanding of the Dhamma, who really understand the nature of this mind and body, for those there is no fear at the time of death. There is peace. So these are some of the arenas in which we can watch fear and really see how it arises in the mind, how it conditions certain reactions. How do we work with it? When fear arises, when we are at this place, in our experience, in practice, in our lives, and fear is coming up, how do we actually work with it? The first and most important thing is to recognize it. Really to see, yes, this is the state that's arising in the mind now. And to recognize it 
with a great quality of softness and acceptance. But the fear itself is okay. It's okay to feel it. Because if we're afraid of the fear, then we're just caught in the same pattern again. The image which works so well for me in understanding how one can relate to fear in a soft and open way is when I think of how one would be with a very frightened child. You know, there's a, there's a child who's very afraid of something. How would we relate to that child? We'd be present, we'd be caring, we wouldn't be feeding the fear, we wouldn't be trying to make the kid more afraid. We wouldn't dismiss it. We wouldn't, we wouldn't condemn it. No. We would just be there and in our prayer, in our loving acceptance, the fear begins to decondition. We allow it to decondition by acceptance, by mindfulness, by non-identification. And so in the same way that we would be with it in a child, that's how we can relate to the fear within ourselves. And it's very powerful just to make that space in the mind a loving, caring space. It's okay. That's the foundation for understanding it, for working it, for going beyond it. Once we get to that place of acceptance of the fear itself, then we can bring in a quality of real discriminating wisdom. We take the measure of the situation and we learn that there are actually different kinds of fear. There are some kinds of fear which are, which are wholesome. The Dalai Lama called them good fears. If you go to the ocean, you know, and you see this big sign, dangerous undertow, there might be a kind of fear arising in the mind of that undertow. It's not aversion. This is not the fear of aversion. It's not that we hate the undertow. It's just the recognition, yeah, this is dangerous. This I have to take some care with. I'll stay away from that. So you could think of that as a kind of wholesome fear born out of discriminating wisdom. It has tremendous application in our lives. Fear in this sense of harmful actions because we see the danger of them. There's other kinds of fear which are not particularly wholesome, which are really just a pulling back or a contraction out of aversion. Once we begin to discriminate what kind of fear it is, then we can make some wise choices. You know, in the first, we might, we might pull back from the situation. In the second, even if there's fear in the mind, we might say, yeah, I can do this anyway. There's this, there's this great fear in me. I'm not going to let that stop me performing this action. I have a few favorite fear stories. <laughs> I know you've, you've probably all heard them all. <laughs> I'll spare you. <laughs> 
Anyway, there are times when we really need... I'll just tell you one briefly. Because <laughs> it came back to me. Since I was a kid, and my third grade music teacher told me just to mouth the words, <laughs> there was this real fear of singing. And it was reinforced over the years by many friends. <laughs> but finally I decided to take the singing class when I was teaching at the Europa Institute in Colorado. And I was really afraid. You know, it's one of these things that from the outside to somebody who likes to sing, they can't understand it. But from the inside it was terrifying. So I go to this class and singing all together. And then one day this other teacher comes in and she's teaching this special kind of Balkan folk singing and she has us go around the room, you know, one by one, repeating some phrase. <laughs> I knew I was in really big trouble. <laughs> and I was getting more and more uptight about this. She comes around to me and she does something and I do something back. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even close. And she was so persistent, you know, and she kept going on and I kept going on. And finally, finally, half worked out and everybody started to applause. I even approached the right note. <laughs> But what was interesting for me, even, even in the time of being quite embarrassed in the whole situation, but I was, I was seeing and also appreciating in myself the possibility, okay, there's this fear, you know. And it's not that the fear went away, the fear was still there and the embarrassment was still there, but to see that there was still the possibility of going ahead and doing it anyway. And to learn that fear doesn't have to limit us. Even if it's still arising, when we see that there's a course of action that for whatever reason we think is desirable to do. And so just to learn that about fear, the key element of that is that first step of being accepting of the fear itself. If we reject the fear, if we're not willing to fear it, then we'll do anything to avoid the situations that are going to call it up. If we are willing to fear it, okay, this fear here, let me act anyway. It just opens up huge areas in our lives that we might have closed ourselves to. process. 
And the last of the ways that I'll mention tonight, there's, there's more here, but it's too, too much to go into right now. But the last of the ways I want to mention now is developing the counterbalancing forces of trust and love. Because these are the great allies for us, the great sources of strength as we're dealing with fear. There's a very nice and appropriate to this time of year haiku poem by one of the Japanese Zen masters. It says, simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down just like that. And there's that sense of reminding ourselves, this is that quality of surrender to the Dharma. You know, when fear is coming up and we're, we're really at this age, if we can remind ourselves, just trust, trust the Dharma, trust the moment, that quality of surrender, it brings us into a place of acceptance, a place of metta. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.